Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Can you all, can you all hear me? I don't know why. I can, is there a way that can be put up a little bit? Uh, Alice, you... Um, the subject is a vast one, and it's a very complicated one. Um, I always talk about my, what was it, clarity, wit, and passion. I'm really not interested in the wit and the passion. I am interested in the clarity, and really the burden of my lectures is information. That's really what I'm interested in, getting people to kind of think about it. But if there's some passion and wit, why not? Um, um, as I said, it's a very complicated subject, and I don't pretend that I have the definitive word. What I want to give you is a, is a sketch uh, of, of it, an overview, uh, and try to put it into some kind of perspective. And, and as I say, it's not the last word. And I also want to give you a lot of information about it, which I want to put, to, which I'm putting together for a new book, not, not Dirty Truth, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, but another one I'm doing, which will be out in the fall, called Memories of a, what is the name of it? Mem <laughs> Memory, Memories of a Future Politics is the name of the book, and that might not even be the name of this talk. In part, that's part of what it is. I think the overthrow, and I call it not the fall of communism, but the overthrow of communism took place, and much of the credit for this should go to the Western forces that tirelessly dedicated themselves to that task, using every means available short of outright nuclear attack. The end of communism came with remarkably little violence. The communists gave up power almost without firing a shot. Maybe the one exception was in uh, Romania, where there were some killings three deaths in Poland. Like Fawensa bragged, he said, we took over power, we overthrew the communists without breaking a single window. Well, you know, that says more about his opponents than about him, really. I mean, that says something because it doesn't fit the picture that we've been given of unscrupulous totalitarians who will stop at nothing to maintain power over captive populations. Why didn't the ruthless Reds act more ruthlessly? I mean, to be sure, these regimes have repressed their opponents. During Stalin's reign, people were executed, interned, forcibly relocated. The Western estimates of the Soviet labor camp population varied widely and wildly from 3 million to 100 million, a figure recently pronounced by an academic at Claremont Institute. They, well, they said 100 million victims. He didn't say they were all in the camps. As far as I can tell, those who offer such figures never reveal, reveal how they arrive at them. Many of Stalin's victims were Communist Party officials, managers, military officers, and other strategically situated individuals. Are you all getting an echo and a, fee a feedback, or am I the only one getting it here? Can't hear me. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what to do. There it is. Okay. There it is. Should I start all over? No, you... <laughs> don't want you to miss a word. Many of Stalin's victims were party elites, managers, military officers. They were people who were strategically situated. In time, other whole categories of people became suspect, uh, prosperous, 
private property owners, or kulaks as they were called, ethnic Germans, Soviet soldiers returning from prisoner war camps after World War II. Nobody hears this echo but me, is that it? It's driving me crazy. Well, that's Boy, the sound systems are really something. <clears throat> I guess what I want to ask in opening on with this thing about Stalin is that the Gulag, with its millions of victims, if you listen to Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov, supposedly existed in the Soviet Union right down to the very last days of communism. If so, as I've asked before, where did it disappear to? That is, when the communist states were overthrown, where were the millions of stricken victims pouring out of the internment camps with their tales of torment? I'm not saying they don't exist, I'm just asking where are they? One of the last remaining camps, Perm 35, visited in 1989 and again in 90 by Western observers, held only a few dozen prisoners some of whom were outright spies, as reported in the Washington Post. Others were refuseniks who had tried to flee the country. The inmates complained about poor quality food, the bitter cold, occasional mistreatment by guards. I should point out that these labor camps were that. They were work camps. They weren't death camps as you had in the Nazism, where there was a systematic extermination of the people in the camps. So there was a relatively high survival rate. The visitors also noted that throughout the 1980s, hundreds of political prisoners had been released from the various camps. But hundreds are not millions. Even with the great thaw that took place after Stalin under Khrushchev, when most of the camps were closed down during Khrushchev's time, there was no sign of millions pouring back into Soviet life. The numbers released were in the thousands. Why, where are the victims? Why no uncovering of mass graves? No Nuremberg-style public trials of communist leaders documenting the widespread atrocities committed against these millions or hundreds of millions that we want to believe our friend in the Claremont Institute. Surely the new communist rulers would have, the, the, I should say, the new anti-communist rulers in Eastern Europe and Russia would have leaped at the opportunity to put these people on trial. And the best that the West Germans could do was to charge East German leader Erich Hanukkah and seven of his border guards with shooting persons who tried to escape over the Berlin Wall. It's a serious enough crime, that is, but it's hardly a gulag. In 1955, the former secretary of the Prague Communist Party was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Ah, a gulag criminal. No, it was for ordering police to use tear gas and water cannons against demonstrators in 1988. Is this the best example of bloodthirsty communist oppression that the capitalist restorations could find in Czechoslovakia? An action that doesn't even qualify as a crime in most Western nations, water cannons and uh, <clears throat> tear gas. Are they kidding? No one should deny that crimes were committed. But perhaps most of the gulag millions existed less in reality and more in the buckets of anti-communist propaganda that were poured over our heads for decades. Many people on the U.S. left have exhibited a Soviet bashing, red baiting, that matches anything on the right in its crudity and obligatory persistence. My friend Noam Chomsky just in Z Magazine talked about those, le uh, those leftists who ride into power on the backs of the masses and turn into communist thugs. 
Norm, Norm, you're not Newt, you're Norm. What are you talking like that for? Um, communists, we're told, hunger for power rather than wanting the power to end hunger. Those of us who refused over those years to join in the Soviet bashing, which by the way reached rather frothy levels by the Reagan years, we were branded as Soviet apologists and Stalinists, even if we disliked Stalin and his autocratic system of rule. My real sin, I decided, which I plan to commit again tonight, and which I've already committed, is that I questioned rather than uncritically embraced the media propaganda images and stereotypes about existing communism. My other sin, which I also plan to commit, is that I also said and still say that there were positive things to consider about existing communist systems. Regarding the Soviet Union, here was a nation that threw back and destroyed the Nazi beast and sustained 80% of the Allied losses in the war, 22 million dead. I thought that that was a debt that humanity owed the Soviet people. Here was a nation that in three decades made industrial advances equal to what it took capitalism a century to accomplish, while feeding and schooling its children rather than working them 14 hours a day, as the capitalists did during the Industrial Revolution, as the, and as capitalists are still doing today in many parts of the world. Here was a nation that provided vital assistance, material, military, medical, armed assistance to liberation movements in Vietnam, Cuba, Nicaragua, South Africa, Angola, and other countries. As Nelson Mandela pointed out, I heard him on a TV show in Washington when he was visiting here in 1990, and the announcer, and the announcer of course, was doing his usual thing. He says, well, the U.S. has done this, and the Soviets have done that, so haha, we know both of you. He's doing the balancing act. You have to always say do that, d dumping on both of them, said, what do you say, Mr. Mandela? And Mandela said, please do not denounce the Soviet Union. They have been our great friends and given us valuable aid in the struggle against apartheid and racism. Only Mandela could get away with saying that on national TV. <laughs> Here was one of the few countries that for all its injustices and dysfunctional structures, and I am going to talk about those things, be patient, did guarantee its citizens some minimal economic security. Here was another positive thing that's never mentioned. A country that performed the rescue and survival of three million Soviet Jews during World War II. I mean, many Jews were killed in World War II because many Russians, period, because they were just in the war and fighting. But three million Soviet Jewish civilians were saved, which is more than you can say happened to Jews in Poland and most of Eastern Europe, in Germany, and Croatia. Left anti-communism was, and it still is, as orthodox and dogmatic as the mainstream or the more extreme McCarthyite varieties, in that it doesn't tolerate anything positive being uttered about existing communist systems, except possibly Cuba. For some reason, and the Cuban system is exactly a Soviet system, a one-party, women's federations, the role of trade union movement, the role of youth groups is exactly the same model. But Cuba is kind of looked at warmly, which is nice. I guess we'd be grateful for small things. Left anti-communism expects nothing less than a blanket condemnation of communist countries as Stalinist monstrosities, 
historic and moral aberrations. I prefer, I prefer what psychologists call differential object appraisal, that you look at something and you see it in very differentiated things. Some things good, some things not so good, regardless of what the political orthodoxy is, regardless of what the advice is about maintaining your credibility, and so making sure that you say these other things. In reaction to this anti-Sovietism, anti-communism, many communists overcompensated by going to the other extreme, by refraining from uttering or even tolerating, listening to a critical word about the autocratic or problematic features of the Soviet Union. I mean, problem-ridden features. I got into more than one altercation trying to make a criticism of the Soviet system with friends and acquaintances in the Communist Party. I can recall a friend of mine, a party member here in the U.S., who assured me that there was no prostitution in the Soviet Union. I mean, here was a woman, she was in her mid-40s, a grown woman of some experience, saying to me that in this nation of, what, 300 million people, there was no prostitution. I remember, I couldn't believe it. I remember when I was in the Soviet Union in Moscow, the guy saying to me, there was no prostitution in my country. Another grown, mature woman. And I said to her, I said, there may be no prostitution in your country, but there's a hell of a lot of it here in this hotel. <laughs> let's get real. Come on, let's get real. We're talking about this very messy, imperfect thing called a human being. And the social organizations they developed, which are even more messy and imperfect than they. Well, she, you know what her response was? She said, without batting an eye, she said, well, those women also have regular jobs during the day, I would like to know. <laughs> Thereby giving new meaning to the term working girl, I mean. <laughs> Some say that the upheavals in Eastern Europe don't constitute a defeat for socialism because socialism never existed in those countries. What you had there was state capitalism, or some such thing. Well, whether we want to call them socialists or not is a matter of definition. Suffice it to say that they constituted something different from what existed in the profit-driven capitalist world, as the capitalists themselves were quick and persistent to recognize. First, the productive forces in these countries were not organized for capital gain and private enrichment, as with capitalism. Public ownership supplanted private ownership. The perks that were enjoyed by party and government elites were relatively modest compared to the elites in most civilizations. Yes, it's true, Soviet leaders like Yuri Andropov and Brezhnev had big dachas where they entertained foreign visitors. Yes, it's true, they had limousine services and they lived in fairly large apartments in a housing project specially set aside for government leaders near the Kremlin. I saw it, it's a big, big, ugly old, very inauspicious building. That's where the leaders of the Soviet Union lived. But it was larger than what ordinary Soviets would get. But nobody in the Soviet Union could hire the labor of others and extract great personal wealth from that labor. The degree of inherited wealth was also relatively modest and limited. The income spread between highest and lowest earners in the Soviet Union was about three or four to one. 
as compared to 40 or 50 to 1 in the U.S. In fact, I did a little computation. If you compare Steve Forbes, multi-billionaire Steve Forbes' income to a poverty-level wage earner, the spread is more like uh, 10,000 to 1, 10,000 times to 1. <clears throat> Furthermore, communist countries did not pursue the capital penetration of other countries. They didn't have a profit motive as their motor force. They didn't have a need to constantly find new investment opportunities to be able to invest more, to accumulate more, to invest more abroad as under capitalism. The Soviet Union's trade and aid relations were generally economically favorable to Eastern European nations, Cuba and India. A real socialism, it's argued, would be controlled by the workers themselves through direct participation instead of being run by Leninists, Stalinists, Castroites, or other ill-willed evil leaders and bureaucrats who betray revolutions, we hear. Well, unfortunately, this pure socialism view is profoundly ahistorical and non-falsifiable. By that I mean it remains untestable against the actualities of history. It, compa it compares an ideal against an imperfect reality, and sure enough, reality comes off a poor second. The pure socialist ideological anticipations remain untainted by existing practice. They don't explain how a complex revolutionary society could be built and secured, how priorities could be set, how, how survival could be achieved by just having the workers own and control everything. How do you get expropriate enough surplus value to build an army to defend yourself against the invasion that comes? It's no surprise that the pure socialists support every revolution except the ones that succeed. The pure socialists usually blame the left for every defeat by the left. They weren't vigorous enough, they weren't resourceful enough, they didn't mobilize the people enough, they didn't do this enough, they didn't do that enough, they didn't do this enough. They presume to know better than those engaged in the actual struggles. And it's unfortunate they haven't, that they haven't found time to apply their own brilliant insights and leadership genius to producing a successful mass revolutionary movement in our own country. Writing in The Guardian in 1991, Tony Febo questioned this pure socialist position. I want to read you what he said. Quote, it occurs to me that when people as smart, different, dedicated, and heroic as Lenin, Mao, Fidel Castro, Daniel Ortega, Ho Chi Minh, and Robert Mugabe, and the millions of heroic people who followed and fought alongside them, all end up more or less in the same place, then something bigger is at work than who made what decision at what meeting or even what size houses they went home to after the meeting. These leaders weren't in a vacuum, they were in a whirlwind. And the suction, the force, the power that was twirling around them has spun and left this globe mangled for more than 900 years. And to blame this or that theory or this or that leader is a simple-minded substitute for the kind of analysis that Marxists should make. End of quote. For a people's revolution to survive, it must seize state power, and I believe it must use state power for two things. First, it has to break the stranglehold exercised over society's institutions and resources by the wealthy class. Second, it, ha <clears throat> it has to withstand the reactionary counterattack that is sure to come internally and externally. The dangers it faces necessitates the development of a centralized state power. 
Something, by the way, that's not particularly to anyone's liking. Not in the Soviet Russia in 1917, not in Sandinista, Nicaragua in 1980. I mean, ideally, it would be a fine thing to have only local, self-directed, worker participation, communitarian socialism with minimal bureaucracy, few police, and no military. And this probably would be the normal development of socialism if socialism were ever allowed a normal development. Throughout its entire 73-year history of counter-revolutionary invasion, I'm talking about the Soviet Union, throughout its entire history of counter-revolutionary invasion, civil war, forced industrialization, Stalinist purges, not Nazi conquest, Cold War, arms race, nuclear threat, trade discrimination, economic embargo, the Soviet Union did not know one day of peaceful, normal development. All these things had a powerfully distorting effect, I believe, on the building of socialism. And you can see the same thing today. I'm sorry. This siege psychology, this siege psychology became very clear in the 1921 Party Congress when Lenin got up, remember, and he said uh, to the worker opposition, he said, no more opposition. We've had too much opposition. We can't take it anymore. Civil war, opposition, opposition from outside the party, opposition inside the party. No more, let's do away with it. And the party congress exploded in cheers and the worker opposition was uh, abolished. I mean, I mean, they were allowed to stay in the party, but they couldn't have an organized opposition caucus in the party anymore. Now, the word was to survive, we needed lockstep party unity, we need a powerful centralized state, open disputes and conflicting tendencies within and without the party, the communists concluded, only create an appearance of division and weakness, and that invites attack by our enemies. That same dilemma, by the way, uh, that same problem of how do you develop a humane society while facing inhumane conditions faced the revolutions we saw in our own day. The ones that, that confronted CIA-sponsored wars of attrition in Nicaragua, Mozambique, Angola, and elsewhere. A trail of broken little nations where the revolutionary, revolutionary baby was either strangled in the crib or was mercilessly deformed beyond recognition. The communist governments were further burdened by this incredible legacy of colonialism and maldevelopment. Many people don't realize it, but most of Eastern Europe, before World War II, and certainly after World War II, given the additional destruction, most of Eastern Europe was a third world region. Thousands of villages were reduced to rubble, illiteracy, poverty, disease, coal, hunger, was the common lot among the peasantry and much of the working class, as it was before the war. Capital formation was almost non-existent. The same was true of pre-revolutionary Russia. The same was true of pre-revolutionary China. Henry Rosemont, he notes that when the communists liberated Shanghai from the US-sponsored Kuomintang reactionary government in 1949, about the communists found that about 20% of the population in Shanghai, 1.2 million people, were drug addicts. And every morning, special crews of street cleaners, quote, would gather up the corpses of children and adults who had been murdered during the night or died of disease, coal, and starvation. Communism 
Ladies and gentlemen, I say it without flinching, communism in Eastern Europe, Russia, China, Mongolia, North Korea, and Cuba brought land reform and human services, a dramatic bettering of the living conditions of hundreds of millions of people on a scale never before or never since witnessed in human history. And that's something to appreciate. Communism transformed desperately poor countries into societies in which everyone had adequate food, shelter, medical care, and education. And some of us who come from poor families who carry around the hidden injuries of class are very impressed, are very, very impressed by these achievements and are not willing to dismiss them as economistic. To say that socialism doesn't work is to overlook the fact that it did work and it worked for hundreds of millions of people. But what about the democratic rights that they lost? We hear U.S. leaders talking about restoring democracy to the communist countries. But these countries, with the exception of Czechoslovakia, were not democracies before communism. Russia was a czarist autocracy. Poland was a right-wing fascist dictatorship under Pilsudski with concentration camps of its own. Albania was an Italian fascist prote protectorate as early as 1927. Cuba was a U.S.-sponsored dictatorship under that butcher Batista. Lithuania, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria were outright fascist regimes openly allied with Nazi Germany in World War II. So what exactly, what democracy are we talking about restoring? The socialist countries did not take away any rights that didn't exist there in the first place. Now all of this is not to deny that communist countries suffered internal deficiencies and contradictions that were real factors in their own demise. I'm not trying to blame it. I don't want to blame it all on capitalist encirclement. Oh, if it wasn't capitalist encirclement. I did remember, I remember talking to the Cuban poet and diplomat, uh, Pablo Armandez, um, in Havana, in his house, and he said, by the way, himself often a critic of his own country, he said, but you know, most of our problems are really caused by our enemies. If they weren't here, we could have solved things and developed in such a different way. We would have had so many less burdens with military and security and this, that, and the other thing, and so forth. Still, I think there, is, there are some very real inherent problems in the systems that were built. All of them were burdened with a managerial economic system that tended to stagnate. And by the way, there may not have been any other choice. I'm not saying they were stupid and they shouldn't build it that way. I'm saying given the exigencies of the time, this is what they had to build. But what they had to build had in itself its own contradictions. So that it was a response to historical necessity and yet it began to create problems of its own. The Soviets, for instance, produced many of the world's best scientists. They exported more mental brain power than the best mathematicians and physicists, too. But very little of their theoretical works materialized in actual production during the scientific technological revolution of the 70s and 80s. I mean, their industrial base was roughly still, the, by 1990, their industrial base was roughly still the one that Stalin had built. Gorbachev complained about, quote, the managerial system that rejects scientific and technological progress and new technologies, that is committed to cost ineffectiveness and generates squandering and waste, unquote. But it's not enough to denounce managerial inertia. We also have to explain why such practices persisted despite repeated exhortations from leader after leader. 
by the way, going back to Stalin, you can hear Stalin ranting about the bureaucrats to Khrushchev when Khrushchev was his assistant, as Khrushchev records in his memoirs. The fact is there were systematic imper there was systemic, I'm sorry, there were systemic imperatives that worked against innovation. Managers got paid whether or not risks were taken or new technology was developed. There was no incentive to innovate. There was a lot of incentive not to innovate. All materials and labor were fully committed according to the plan, so it was difficult to shift resources for new experimental projects and run the risk of lower output during the transition and run the risk of failure. Enterprises never had to pay real value prices for materials and fuel, so they often used these goods inefficiently and wastefully. Improvements in production would lead only to an increase in one's production quota. If we did better, we'd get a bigger quota next year. In effect, well-run innovative factories were punished with greater workloads. Poorly managed ones that showed a loss were rewarded with state subsidies. Under the pressure to turn out quantity, managers often cut corners on quality. Farmers did the same. For instance, state, the state buyers of meat paid attention to quantity only. So the collective farms, what was their incentive? To maximize profits by, maximize income by producing fatter and fatter animals. Now consumers may not particularly care to eat fatty meats, but that was their problem. But only, but only a fool or a saint would work harder to produce better quality meat for the privilege of getting paid less. You think after 70 years they could work out a, a meat grading system, you know, see, but, but this, this pressure for quantity went right up to the top. Guys didn't want to shake the boat. As in all countries, whether they're capitalist or communist, and by the way, it's interesting, many of these problems you have to say, which of these problems are peculiar to socialism, which of uh, this, this particular brand of socialism at this stage of historical development that we're talking about now, Eastern Europe, China, Cuba, and the Soviet Union, which of these are peculiar to those areas, and which of them are peculiar, which other problems are peculiar, or problems of social organization are peculiar to capitalism? You have quite a list there. And which are, which are in fact universal, in the, which of them are just part of the nature of, of social organization? certain way. That, that's a whole other <clears throat> lecture maybe. I don't want to get into that. Let me just say that certainly bureaucracy, which is often ascribed to being a particular component of socialism, it was found in our society all over the place too. And we have some interesting things to say about it later when, from, from the East German perspective. Bureaucracy tends, whether it's capitalist or communist, tends to become a self-feeding animal. In, in the <clears throat> In the existing socialist countries, there were, there were enterprises in which the administrative personnel increased at a faster rate than productive workers. Well, that's, that's nothing. I remember there are at least two universities I taught at. One was uh, State University of New York at Stony Brook, and the other was the University of Vermont, both of which went through fast growth periods. And it was very interesting what happened. The student body would go up about 20% over a certain number of years. The faculty would go up about 24%, 18%, something like that, roughly in the same range. And administration would go up 70%. And we'd say, what do all these guys do? 
what is the assistant associate deputy dean to the uh, curriculum of this and that? What does this guy do besides call, up, call each other up and keep each other busy and sending us all these memos to, that we had to fill out because they had some idea about this and that? Um, well, uh, applause from some, angry murmurs from the school administrators that are in the audience. <laughs> There were enterprises in socialist countries. A factory with 11,000 production workers might have 5,000 administrative staff. A considerable burden. The heavy bureaucratic mode of operation did not allow for critical self-corrective feedback. The fate of the whistleblower was the same in communist countries as in our own. Those who exposed incompetence and corruption were more likely to run risks than receive rewards. It also led to a, a, a rather out-of-touch leadership. In 1990 in Washington, D.C., I attended a press conference held by the Hungarian ambassador who announced that his country was abandoning their socialist system because it didn't work. So I raised my hand and I said, so, why didn't it work? It'd be an interesting discussion. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and I wanted to go up and grab the guy by the lapels and say, schmuck, I mean, listen, you, excuse me, New Yorkism there, you, you are one of the people presiding over this process and you admit you have no idea what was going on in the process. And it's rather remarkable, isn't it? Well, by the way, I'm using the past tense, but just about all the problems that I'm talking about still exist in the remaining communist states of North Korea, Cuba, and Vietnam. If you talk to the inhabitants of communist countries, you discovered that they complained less about an overbearing totalitarianism, I and mean, that's what we always got in the media, this totalitarian thing weighing on us, and their complaints generally were rather the opposite. What we used to hear was that they more often complained about the absence of responsible control, that nobody seemed to be minding the store. Maintenance people failed to perform needed repairs. Occupants of a new housing project regularly refused to pay rent and no one bothered to collect it. Poor management and harvesting, storage and transportation caused as much as 30% of all produce to be lost between field and store. Tons of meat were left to spoil because they'd never got it together with proper refrigeration. And not surprisingly, there was ample opportunity for corruption and favoritism. The factory director who accepted bribes to place people at the top of a waiting list to buy cars. The deputy minister who got caught using state materials to build his vacation home. Rewards seem to lie in operating around the system or even against it. If you operated that way, that's when you got rewarded. For instance, the poorer the restaurant service, the fewer the number of clients. The fewer the clients, the less work and the more food left over that I could take home or sell on the black market. The last thing that restaurant personnel, restaurant personnel wanted was satisfied customers who would keep returning to dine at the officially fixed, artificially low prices. I mean, that's why the restaurants were so awful in socialism. So the system actually offered many disincentives. In 1979, Cuban leader Raul Castro 
Fidel's brother complained about fraudulent work practices. He noted the absenteeism, fake work reports, deliberate slowdowns so as not to surpass work norms, norms that were fixed at artificially low levels. In most communist countries, one got the impression that everyone as a worker seemed to be conspiring against everyone as a consumer. Now that's overstated. Obviously some things were done. I mean, buildings were built, people had clothing, the books were excellent. They were the one product that they produced which was, which were made of excellent quality. Uh, the public transportation system was excellent. I mean, so there were some things, I mean, so obviously some people were doing some work. Communists, I don't want to overstate it, but I'm giving you what a major problem was. I remember one Soviet guy said to me, you, you people are tired from working so hard. I said, you, you don't work as hard as we do. Uh, he said, you don't, you're tired of working so hard, we're tired of waiting on lines all the time. And I thought, well, if you work a little harder, there wouldn't be so many lines. Communist economics had an Alice in Wonderland aspect to it. And that, I mean, it's rather remarkable that the price of just about every commodity in service bore no relation to the actual cost or value, except for expensive luxury items. With prices held so artificially low, there was a great disparity between purchasing power and the supply of goods and services. And this in turn affected work performance. I listened to an East German friend complain about poor services and inferior products. He said, the system doesn't work. This doesn't happen. You go to the hospital and they haven't washed the floors and the woman who's supposed to wash them won't do it. She doesn't show up for work. It doesn't work. The system doesn't work. And I remember saying to him, but Klaus, what about the free education, the public health care system, and the numerous other social benefits that are so lacking here in the United States and in much of the capitalist world? Aren't those things valued? And his response was very interesting. He looked at me and he said, oh, nobody ever talks about those. And that shows you that people took for granted the way the human services and entitlements, they took for granted the human services and entitlements while they were hungry for the consumer cornucopia that they imagined existed for everyone in the West. Once our needs are satisfied, then our wants tend to escalate. Indeed, our wants become our needs. From Cuba to China, from Russia to Laos and Vietnam, there were intellectuals and professionals who had relatively good living standards who yet wanted to live still better. They wanted to travel abroad. They wanted to see Paris. They wanted greater opportunities made available to persons uh, like themselves. Uh, <clears throat> they wanted the same kind of opportunities that were available to persons uh, of means in the capitalist world. By 1989, those who fled from Vietnam, according to a Washington Post story, were neither desperately poor nor persecuted political dissidents. To quote one, I don't think my life in Vietnam was bad. In fact, I was very well off. But it's human nature to always want something better. Another one, quote, they left for the same reasons we did, referring to some of the people. They wanted to be richer, just like us. And similar testimonies could be gleaned from Eastern European emigres, maybe not as blatant, but something like that. The longing was usually not for an abstraction called democracy, but for the cornucopia of the West, in most cases, not always. As living standards rise, so do expectations rise. People are not necessarily grateful for what they already have. This seems to be especially true among the young. 
who have no memory of pre-revolutionary deprivations. Generally, the two most discontent groups in socialist societies are the intellectuals and the young, the two groups that know everything. <laughs> in Cuba today, many youth see no value in joining the Communist Party. They think Fidel has had his day and he ought to step aside. The revolution's accomplishments in education and medical care are something to take for granted. They can't get too excited about it. They're fed up with the shortages. For them, the revolution is history, something that their parents got all excited about. If they have any collective passion, it's for the latest clothing styles and music from North America. Generally, they're more concerned with their own personal future than with collective betterment or socialism. I remember when I first went to Cuba in 1974, the, the, the slogan at that time was, our only privileged group are our youth. And I remember saying, that's your first mistake. <laughs> now, see, even in the best of societies, there may not be enough rewarding jobs. Much of labor in society has an instrumental value, but it doesn't have any inherent value. Uh, you can be given a job, you know, work for build the revolution, and it means painting walls all day, painting walls. Well, you know, after a while, uh, the, the revolution begins to lose its luster. And, you, and the, the, the more efficiently and quickly you paint one wall, you're just going to have another wall to paint. And if you paint them slow or fast, you get paid the same. So what's the big thing? Uh, there just isn't enough interesting and creative work to go around for all who consider themselves to be interesting and creative people. And there's a lot of them. Many of the intellectuals under communism were not only anti-Marxist, but to the point of being full-fledged adulators of Western reactionism. The more rapidly anti-communist, the more reactionary chic a position was, the more appeal it had. They were ferociously opposed to their own system. They were utterly gaga and starry-eyed about America and unwilling to look at the senior side of U.S. society and global capitalism. They were utterly racist toward minorities in their own country and in the United States, their attitudes. As the editor of the Wall Street Journal put it, writing an article in the National Review, you can't get any more conservative than that, I quote him, they love Ronald Reagan, Marlboro cigarettes, and the South in the American Civil War. The Eastern European intellectuals supported every U.S. armed intervention abroad and every U.S. armed escalation as defensive. They openly detested the U.S. peace movement. That's true of Andrei Sakharov. That's something you never got in the media. He openly detested and criticized the U.S. peace movement. They never had an unkind word for fascist regimes that were faithful U.S. client states. And they directed snide remarks at those of us who did. You could read Sakharov on that too. Their, their advocacy, their support of dissent, did not extend to opinions that deviated to the left of them. They tolerated dissent that was to the right of them, but not to the left, as is true with many people here. In 1990, one of their Moscow publications, Literaturnaya Gazette, Gazeta, Literary Gazette in English, I, I read it in English translation, so I might as well use the English title, right? It hailed Reagan, Ronald Reagan and George Bush as statesmen and called them the architects of world peace. This was in 1990, while the Soviet Union still exists, under Glasnost, you were getting these new publications coming out. It questioned the need for a ministry of culture in the Soviet Union. Quote, there is no such ministry in the United States, and yet it seems there's nothing wrong with American culture. 
So who said Russians don't have a sense of humor? <laughs> Many of them thought that they could keep all the securities of communism and overlay it with capitalist consumerism. They thought that uh, if they were laid off from work, if their factory was privatized, the government was going to find them another job. You know, talk to Polish workers, they just assumed that everything they had was going to stay and they were going to get this other whole new thing. They didn't get it. They really, now they're getting it. Boy, are they getting it right up the kazoo. <clears throat> now, by the way, not everyone sm swallowed the free market mythology. In the 1989-91 period of overthrow and the transition, there were opinion polls in Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Russia, and East Germany. And these were reported in the U.S. press. It showed that most people, most people still opted for state ownership or some modified form of socialism. The numbers who actually wanted free market capitalism were surprisingly small. When anti-communist governments took power in Russia and Eastern Europe, they set about suppressing the communist and socialist left in the name of democratic reform. In late 1993, facing resistance to his free market policies, Boris Yeltsin forcibly disbanded the Russian parliament and every other elected representative body in the country, including all the regional and city councils. He abolished Russia's constitutional court and launched an armed attack upon the parliamentary building, killing hundreds of resistors. Estimates are about 3,000 actually, and demonstrators. Thousands were rounded up and detained. Opposition leaders were jailed without trial. Hundreds of elected and appointed officials were placed under investigation. Some are still in jail. Yeltsin banned labor unions from all, over, uh, from, from all political activities. He suppressed dozens of publications and television shows. He exercised monopoly control over all broadcast media. He outlawed 15 political parties. He rewrote the Constitution, giving the executive nearly absolute power over legislation. For these crimes, he was treated as a defender of democracy and reform by U.S. leaders and the media. What they most liked about Yeltsin was, to quote the San Francisco Chronicle, Quote, he has never wavered in his support for privatization of state-owned industries. I think that really says it all. In the various Eastern European countries, Marxists were purged from all public employment. Communist Party assets acquired and paid for by party members were arbitrarily confiscated. The same in Germany, in Russia, in the Czech Republic. Vaclav Havel seized the properties of the Socialist Union of Youth. These included campsites, recreation halls, and cultural and scientific facilities for children. These were liquidated and put under the management of joint stock companies at the expense of the youth who were left to roam the streets. In Russia, Boris Yeltsin twice suspended the Communist Party newspaper Pravda. He eventually turned the party's 12-story building and its press over to a pro-Yeltsin government newspaper that became the full owner. Yeltsin's police continued to attack political demonstrators in Moscow and other cities. Two parliamentary deputies, one independent, the other a communist, were, who, vigorous, who vigorously opposed the Yeltsin government, were assassinated. In 1994, journalist Dmitry Kolodov, who was probing corruption in high places, was assassinated. Reactionary, anti-Semitic, crypto-fascist parties and hate campaigns have surfaced in the former communist countries, along with the desecration of Jewish cemeteries and xenophobic attacks against foreigners of darker hue. Lech Wałęsa, quote, 
a gang of Jews got hold of the trough and is bent on destroying us, unquote. Later on, like Voenza said, he was misinterpreted. He did not mean all Jews, only the greedy ones. <laughs> I remember how many people on the left adored like Voenza, a worker hero who was going to bring true socialism. Yeah, right. <clears throat> In Czechoslovakia, Poland, and elsewhere, museums that commemorated the heroic anti-fascist resistance were closed down, and monuments to the struggle against Nazism were removed. In countries like Lithuania, former Nazi war criminals were exonerated. Some were even compensated financially for the years they spent in jail. The first president of, uh, of the anti-communist Czechoslovakia, and later president of the Czech Republic, Vaclav, Vaclav Havel, another guy who was adored among some of the academics here, he took personal ownership of public properties that had belonged to his wealthy family 40 years before. Havel, the man of peace, sent Czech troops into the Gulf War, into the war that killed 100,000 Iraqi civilians. Havel sent arms to the fascist regime in Thailand. Havel voted with the United States to condemn human rights violations in Cuba, but he's never uttered a word of condemnation of human rights in El Salvador, Colombia, Guatemala, Indonesia, Thailand, and any other U.S. client state. <clears throat> 